As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. This season, I'm welcoming a series of thought-provoking guests to the show to see where exactly humanity is headed and how we can collectively create the future we'd like to see. We began the season by discussing ideas around creativity, storytelling, songwriting, and myth to begin to imagine new realities here on Earth before hearing from guests who are creatively working with sound, crystals, light, animals, and sacred geometry to help us remember how our reality here on Earth actually works and how we can creatively bring some of this ancient future technology into our daily lives. As we're nearing the end of the season, I'd like to bring it full circle, back to where we started, but with some thoughts, ideas, and guests rooted deeply into the earth. It's my deep hope that these conversations will stir something within you or perhaps light a spark in your imagination for what you might be able to bring forward from the depths of your soul into this reality. I think it's going to take all of our ideas, visions, and inspired action to arrive at this unknown future timeline. So my hope is that this season inspires you to bring your own bit of magic into the world to help usher in what's next for us all. Before we get into this week's episode, if you're feeling inspired to go deeper and want to support the work it takes to bring this podcast to life, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Tap the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. And now, on with the show. The world is big enough that you can never explore it all, and small enough that we can trust in finding our way home. It's as though you were made to be here. Funny that. Welcome to the Crypto Naturalist. If you follow Jared K. Anderson, aka the Crypto Naturalist on Instagram, but haven't stumbled across his weird and wonderful podcast by the same name, you are missing out. What you'll find when you tune in is in the tradition of classic nature documentaries, but profoundly weirder. The show has been called Night Vale Meets a Prairie Home Companion, and David Attenborough Meets the X-Files. The podcast loves cryptids, but focuses solely on creatures you've never heard of before. Do they exist? Well, I guess you could say they live in Jared's mind. And if they live there, who's to say that they aren't actually hidden away in some deep, dark forest somewhere? 
Either way, the Crypto Naturalist podcast is a portal to another place and time where everything is animate and the human is the tiny but curious participant in the whimsical natural world, just as it should be. As we're nearing the end of this podcast season, these last few episodes will bring us back to storytelling, meaning making, and the magical planet that we live on. As we think about the future, how can we be hopeful rather than hopeless? Can we shift the direction humanity is headed? Are we too small to make a difference? I don't think so. And neither does Jared. So I'll leave you here with our conversation and encourage you to go find the Crypto Naturalist podcast when you need a little dose of whimsy and wonder in your day. Welcome, Jared, to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today and chat with you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, well, let's start at the beginning. For anybody who is not familiar with the term, what is a cryptid? (laughs) So cryptid from the Greek crypto is just anything that's hidden. So, you know, my podcast, Crypto Naturalist, refers to anything involving hidden nature, hidden animals. Um, You know, I've had some confusion in the last few years with uh, if I did something related to currency, but I keep assuring everybody that 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 wasn't the uh the sense behind that root word at the time when i picked that name (laughs) who knew there would be such confusion (laughs) yeah well if anybody who has listened to your podcast has been introduced to many many different types of cryptids probably many of whom they've never heard of before so (laughs) i'm just curious as you have created uh this experience what are some of your favorite cryptids that you've come across? <laughs> yeah. So in terms of podcast episodes, um, one of my favorite early ones is still the orbital kingfisher. Um, and that's because I love actual kingfishers. And it's such a rare and special occasion when I when I get to observe one. And to see a bird that can sort of hover above the above the water and then suddenly dive and their proportions are so interesting. So, so with that episode, it's like, all right, well, what if a kingfisher wasn't hovering above the water but was hovering above the atmosphere and then dove in from from low orbit? So, um, I think that's one of my favorites. Um, oh, they're all my favorites. They're kind of all my all my children, you know. I only knew one crypto naturalist who had ever seen the bird in person, and her experience was a bit harrowing. Laksha Patel, a fine colleague of mine, once recounted to me the story of her encounter with the cosmic predator. She had situated herself in a subalpine fir tree and waited near a mountain lake only a couple of hundred miles from my current location. Fortunately... She was able to see the kingfisher. Unfortunately, when it dove, it dove for her, swallowing her whole. The bird digested her and excreted her in the space of a few terrifying, claustrophobic moments, and she found herself tumbling back to Earth to fall unharmed in a nearby lake. The orbital kingfisher didn't digest her flesh. Rather, it digested something less tangible. Down in the inscrutable gullet of that thing, Laksha lost her appreciation for her favorite musician, which happened to be Dolly Parton. Somehow, the creature gained nourishment from metabolizing a small facet of Laksha's personality. 
She confided in me later that there are days she wishes the creature would have taken something a little more mundane, like a foot or an ear. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And we, uh, although Bigfoot isn't one that you particularly uh, talk about, it's one we talk about here on the podcast uh, regularly. And it's it's really a fun experience to kind of you know, dive in and connect with some of these energies on a non-physical yeah. level. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's sometimes I get asked, um, because I'm, you know, uh, I'm a naturalist and I'm a, I'm a lover of animals and, you know, a birder and a nature poet. And so sometimes I get asked, you know, what was the idea behind kind of leaning into fictional nature? And it's like, well, for me, it's capturing that feeling you have when you're a child and all aspects of nature are equally new and miraculous and mesmerizing. So, you know, you hear electric eels exist when you're a kid and it's mind blowing, but you're like, okay, well, it's all mind blowing. You know, a hummingbird is, <laughs> a robin is mind blowing. So, so, you know, one reason I like cryptids and, and the idea of being a crypto naturalist is it's, it's allowing, you know, you to come to nature with that sort of new eyes and sense of awe all over again. And for me, it's a reminder to look at kind of commonplace nature with those same eyes, if that makes sense. It does. I love that. And just the the magic and the mystery of the things that are all around us all the time that even in this physical realm, maybe we don't see and maybe we don't interact with or we don't realize how mystical and magical they are. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it, physicality is an interesting part of it, right? Because in terms of when we talk about physical nature or um, or things that, that feel more magical or mystical or out of reach, um, for me, sort of, uh, even as I look to, to kind of root some things in, in science, you know, I was a biology major and an English major kind of simultaneously, but I find exactly the same sense of magic and, and, you know, thinking about fungal networks that connect tree roots and allow them to communicate or, or the mystery of, of how oak trees communicate and have, you know, crops of acorns one year and then stay dormant for three and then are all on the same page to have bumper crops of acorns again. Um, and I just love all the things we don't know. Um, I think that keeps nature interesting in so many ways. Um, and, it, you know, I often talk about meaning as being such a fundamental human need and, and one that I like to think is a, is a participatory kind of need, you know, the, the idea of taking like the nectar of experience and making it into the honey of meaning and, and that involves us. And so, okay, you know, seeing a maple tree, touching it, smelling it, maybe tasting maple syrup is is the nectar but then you know the synthesis we do with that when we think about ourselves and our place in the world that's that's where the honey comes in you know yeah it's so beautiful i was just thinking i read recently something about how mycelium and the mushrooms almost conspire with the weather right to move the spores around and do these different things and and 
the theory being that, you know, maybe mushrooms are even controlling the weather more than we realize in order to get what they need. And I just think, oh, I like, <laughs> you know, it just blows your mind wide open thinking of something on such a different level than maybe you've experienced it. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the fun part is that would be shocking. And yet we're constantly shocked right? <laughs> when, we, when we learn, you know, new things. And uh, <laughs> It's just a delight. And, you know, I'm I'm 42 years old and I've been out in the woods most days of my life. And, you know, I live in sort of a rural area of Ohio and I was out walking a couple of days ago and saw a fungus I'd never seen before. It's not as if I haven't been paying attention. It's right. just, oh, OK, well, hello. <laughs> um, so nice I, to meet you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I take a picture with my phone and I, I reach out to fungus experts and, you know, I get to discover something all over again. And that happens pretty frequently, even though I think, you know, that I, I pay attention pretty well in my in my local environment. But nope, you never run out of mysteries. You know, I'm never going to have answered all the questions. I'll I'll never have peered under every rock. And I feel like that understanding of those limitations is something that enriches rather than frustrates is is the viewpoint I like to take to nature. Yeah, well, I mean, you're touching on it a little bit, but tell me a little bit more about really your desire to start your podcast and share this with other people. Yeah, well, that was kind of an accident. Um, so I was working in academia and, you know, I had been an English English teacher and um, and I'd worked in administration and I was kind of sick of what I was doing and I was preparing to kind of transfer out of academia and look at other careers. And I kind of said to myself, all right, well, I want to make writing fun again. If I could do anything I want, what would that be? And so the result of that was the crypto naturalist podcast. And it was, you know, I'm someone who loves speculative fiction and sci-fi and shows like the X files and, you know, authors like Jeff Vandermeer and, um, but then I also love nature shows and documentaries, and I love reading about nature. And there's one that looms large from my childhood called Wild America with this guy named Marty Stauffer. And he had, he was kind of a backwoodsy kind of guy, but he did, you know, these wonderful shows where he would go and he would, you know, look at beavers or muskrats, whatever the case would be. And he just came to it with such love and enthusiasm. And I thought, all right. What if that guy, but we're talking about cryptids and supernatural elements, but with that same sense of um, love and enthusiasm and and treating it with that same kind of like diligent, systemic view of like a nature documentary. Um, so then it allowed me to bring all the enthusiasm I wanted, but then invent the the nature that I was I was you know getting to talk about and bring expertise about and um and yeah it brings us back to that that point I made it earlier that it's like the truth within a lie to me because it's like yeah it's fiction I'm making up these cryptids but also it's in service to a greater truth which is hey every part of our world is this amazing um and it's recapturing that for me um because all right you know a lot of the podcast is an invention but 
it's an invention in service to like a greater truth as far as as far as I think about it. Yeah, and I love how you make everything you interact with animate, right? In that uh, even even the RV that the crypto naturalist travels in has its own story and its own personality and its own soul, right? That and sure. and all of the cryptids and these locations and the places, you know, really brings. Uh, life to everything, which I think is really missing in our current culture. This, you know, uh, interaction with the natural world as being alive and animate. Yeah, and that you know, I have sort of a bizarre, muddled piece together, a kind of spirituality from childhood. I, you know, I w- I wasn't raised with any sort of formal religion, but I had a mother who called the woods her church. And we went, you know, on nature walks every day and and talked about it and paid attention. And um, if everything's animate in the podcast, it's because that's often how it feels to me just out in the world. You know, you know, when I touch a tree, I feel life there. But honestly, when I touch a stone, I feel life there. So um, there again, the podcast becomes kind of an ongoing metaphor for for a larger worldview that I that I cherish. Yeah, and, and you're a good company here with me and all of the listeners because that's certainly sure, right. the, the perspective that that we tend <laughs> to approach life with and and the experiences that that we've had as well. And I think once you've had those experiences, it's hard to look at the world in any other way. Yeah, and that's been that's been a fun part of this to me as the podcast gained more listeners and social media following. I it's been fun to meet people who kind of has said, oh. You know, the worldview I'm seeing in your writing <laughs> overlaps or connects to mine in interesting ways. And it's been a diverse um set of set of groups and people who have who've said similar things to me. And it just it's it's really a um I don't know, an optimistic and affirming sort of pattern I've noticed because then I'm like, all right, well, there's just a lot of overlap in all of these different um, facets of the human experience and, and ways of looking at the world. And it's kind of nice in terms of feeling like sometimes I I reside at a crossroads of a lot of different kinds of philosophy. And um, yeah, it just, it makes me feel optimistic about humanity in general, I think. Agreed. I, I really love that. And I think, you know, let's talk a little bit about that intersection between science and magic because i think that's a those are kind of two maybe disciplines that that feel like they're coming a little closer together or people are recognizing uh the value in both worldviews and both you know points of view sure well i like to say that truth and fact are sisters not twins um and it's also, you know, cousin to that is a what is not a why. And that goes back to sort of the meaning issue I was talking about earlier, where um, I have run into a couple times in my life, this sort of idea that um, kind of a more spiritual viewpoint or religious viewpoint is, is incompatible with a scientific approach. And I don't feel that at all for that reason that a what is not a why, you know, you can study the physicality of a tree, um, you know, forever and not know <laughs> and only scratch the surface, but you can throw as much what at it as you want. And it doesn't give you a why it's still not a meaning. Like a meaning is necessarily to me, a construct 
in a subjective construct. And sometimes subjective is sort of a dirty word, but I don't think it is at all. I think it's kind of a fundamental part of what we need as human beings. Like how we view ourselves um, as part of the world and part of the story of the world takes decisions, subjective decisions from ourselves. And um, not only is there nothing wrong with that, but I think it's vital to everyone. I mean, if you, you know, I have a master's in Renaissance poetry and, you know, I'm kind of a student of, of um, the history of meaning making, if you will, if you look at the history of poetry and writing and um, that need crops up everywhere. Everyone's trying to figure out themselves and their place in the world through storytelling. Um, and identity itself is sort of the story of ourselves we tell to ourselves and all of this meaning making and, and letting, um, fact and interpretation interact in a way that enriches and uplifts us to me, kind of, that's where magic comes in, um, is this feeling of significance, um, that, is very real and very vital and very much needs our participation. Uh, and, you know, I, I found some hardcore science perspectives sometimes like, Oh, well, that's just window dressing. And it's not like everything from observer effect and science, where we see that observation changes results to um, just the, wins and whys of how we keep getting up in the morning like these these sort of viewpoints and interpretations and ways we make meaning and and kind of exert our own viewpoint on the world like i think it's fundamental and i think it not only shapes us but it really does shape our reality um and so that's a long-winded way of saying that like i don't think science is the beginning and ending of of how we learn about the world and ourselves or how we um, sort of exert our ourselves and our personhood onto the world and how we interact and appreciate nature. Um, you know, there's just a lot of different ways of knowing um, and ways of making meaning. And, and I think it's, you know, arrogant and bizarre to try to, for anyone to close themselves off and, and not listen to other people's sort of ways of accessing knowledge and meaning. Did I answer that question at all? I kind of straight up. <laughs> no, that was perfect. And I think, you know, I was just thinking about that, uh, what you mentioned about the, the Renaissance and that timing really of, you know, religion maybe subsiding in order for science to take over and that whether it was an unintended consequence or not, we kind of have the last few hundred years come to this place where we're worshiping at the altar of science, for lack of a better term. And, you know, religion, although not certainly not absent or gone, we don't have that collective agreement of this is our origin story. This is how we got here. This is this is what we all believe in. And so it feels like maybe that's some of what's difficult about bringing these two things together is that that lack of agreement. Yeah, sure. And I think people feel an absence when they look at the what, not the why, when they look at when they only think in terms of fact and not truth as it as it you know diverges from fact like i think people feel that absence and then they try to find ways to fill it 
you know, my argument usually, and honestly, I don't have an argument because I want people to do whatever <laughs> they need to, to feel whole and, and happy and in touch with nature. But, you know, I feel like it's participatory. Well, you've shared before about your feeling that we should shift the discussion around things like biodiversity and climate from listing facts to telling stories. So can you share a little bit more about your thoughts on that? Yeah, I just, I sometimes feel like um, part of the problem is that folks feel this false dichotomy between themselves and nature um, that they feel like, I mean, it's ludicrous when you say it out loud, but they think that like, you know, a sheet of drywall and a door somehow have removed them from the systems of nature and that climate is an out there problem, um, which is bonkers. Um, but is also, I feel like kind of an insidious, um, cancer of disinterest that has spread among people because they don't feel like they have a role in nature or that nature has a role in their lives. And so things like biodiversity, it's, it's hard to care about something that you don't understand and feels like an out there problem. And, you know, in terms of politics, so many folks think about politics like a team sport. And if, if that isn't a question that my team or my brand deals with, then it's not for me and I can, I can laugh at it. Um, and so uh, when I try to think about what's the way out for that, I, I don't think it's a list of facts. List of facts, very important. We need those. You know, science, evidence-based approaches, very important. But when you need to get other people interested in why it even matters to ask these questions or do this research, then that's more about buy-in um, in terms of caring. And the fundamental root for me, for people to care about about nature, is to understand that you know, every breath we take is a conversation with nature. You know, it's uh, the oxygen you breathe, the iron in your blood. I mean, every part of you is from nature. And and the idea that nature is out there and not that our minds and our thoughts, you know, arose in this world through the same natural process as any oak leaf. It's We lose that and then suddenly nature is an annoyance. You know, we get our food from the store. Um, you know, it's hot out there. We close doors to keep bugs out. And that's our view of nature. And it's hard to get people to care or act or, um, or participate in becoming stewards of nature because it's has nothing to do with them. And, you know, I, I said earlier that, that identity is the story of ourselves that we tell to ourselves, you know, an evolving story in order for nature to become part of that. That's a story question not a fact question in many ways. So uh, to get people to understand that the story of nature is the story of you and me, I, I think that's got to be part of how we approach, you know, the climate crisis. Yeah. And it's, it really is interesting, you know, how, how separate people feel from this place that we all came from and this place that's really, you know, it's all around us and surrounds us every day, but we've really done a good job culturally in convincing ourselves that 
that's not true. And so I think it's interesting. I mean, your your storytelling, although the theme is similar, it feels different on the podcast, for instance, than on social media. You know, you're using poetry and, and yeah. storytelling and, and those types of things in a, in a different way there. And I just wonder, you know, what's your feeling around how storytellers can perhaps lead us to this place where we can remember that connection that we have? So one thing I think is lacking is that enthusiasm. I mean, to take it back to the podcast, um, and some of it is just sort of the nature of how social media works. You know, we know, you know, we have evidence, we have folks that worked on the engineering side of the algorithms that like negative interactions keep people engaged more than positive interactions. So social media is incentivized to skew toward the negative. Okay. So if most of your associations with nature or the climate or wildlife is couched in the context of a negative story or something that makes you feel bad or hopeless, I mean, um, you know, I'm thinking of the book um, Braiding Sweetgrass. You know, Robin Wall Kimler at one point was talking about her students and asked them to name positive interactions between nature and human beings. And many of them couldn't do it. And it's like, if all of your interactions with the idea of nature, climate, um, you know, biodiversity are bad news and negativity, then I think a lot of people just sort of develop a callus. They just shut it out. Um you know, I occasionally will post something positive about nature and I'll get a response that it's like, well, you know, once human beings all die out, that'll be good. Or like we're a cancer and a, it's like, wow, you know that you're as natural an animal as, as any sparrow, right? Like uh, this idea that we're here from some other dimension or that we're not part of this place um, and that we are either here to consume it and use it and disregard it or the best thing we can do is disappear. All of these, to me, are, are kind of akin in the way that they think of us as utterly outside of nature and have no positive reason to be here. It's, you know, so it goes back to the like, all right, back to enthusiasm, back to that feeling of when you were a little kid and turned a rock over and saw a pill bug and it blew your mind how something so amazing and wonderful could just be there in the waking world with you. Um, storytellers and 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 folks that think about making meaning and art and I think one thing we can help do is lead people back to that realization that that you're not an alien here and that nature is not an imposition um, and that it's nourishing more than just physically it's you know spiritually and intellectually and um, I struggle with a great deal of mental illness. And for me, it's, it's medicinal, you know, I have chronic major depression and, um, being connected to place and nature has been extremely helpful to me, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of dealing with dealing with my struggles and, you know, I'm, I know I'm not alone in the benefits of sort of intentional seeing of going out with, with the, the eye for how is this place special and how am I connected to it? You know, and it can be hard to do. And I think storytellers are in a kind of unique position 
in so much as we understand the world and our place in it through stories, we're in kind of a unique position to help people find the models and templates for those stories that connect and uplift. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think people ask me all the time too, about this kind of idea that, well, if the earth doesn't like humans or if we push it too far, right, she'll just get rid of us, right? You just can wipe us off the face of the earth in, in one fell swoop. And while I think that's true, my personal interactions in nature have shown that we're part of the ecosystem. The earth doesn't want to lose humans, right? We're we're here and important when we're when we're playing along as we yeah. should be, uh, in so many different parts and pro- you know processes that our desire to kind of separate us and say, well, I guess when the earth's had enough, that that'll be the end of us, instead of saying, how can we come back into alignment as the part of the ecosystem we're supposed to be in and be participating. Yeah. I mean, you know, the question becomes sustainability. And you know, our intellect, which also came from nature, which is also, you know, a, an evolved trait, like duck feathers, you know, what we're noticing is that like, all right, this isn't a sustainable rate of growth, of consumption, of pollution, etc. But there's nothing unnatural about that. You know, like that's part of our evolved natural traits, you know, sending off alarm bells that, all right, we need to change behavior. Is that unnatural? No, you know, then not at all. And, and then there's this strange bias, you know, and we talk about the dichotomy of like, well, nothing human can be natural or part of an ecosystem. Um, uh, my friend, Rebecca Helm, who studies, um, ocean life and ecology and, um, uh, you know, talks about, uh, she was telling me about how plastic in the ocean, they're finding that certain plastics that float are being inhabited by the creatures that used to rely on driftwood because oh, wow. we, we've cut how much driftwood reaches the ocean by like 80% by, you know, having more control over the rivers and dams. And there used to be a lot more driftwood in the ocean. Okay, a lot of creatures used to live on that driftwood, and those creatures are learning how to live on floating debris from humans. Is that okay? <laughs> you know, there are there are um, there have been instances of sort of um, Western scientists working with indigenous populations, and like the indigenous populations being like, "Well, leave that plastic. The animals are using it," and they're having to be kind of an adjustment of viewpoint. From sort of the Western science and like, oh, okay. Um, there's sort of an in- implicit bias of like, well, a human thing doesn't belong here no matter what. You know, you see it in terms of people talking about how they visit nature too. Like if you touch a tree that's growing next to a parking lot, it doesn't count. You have to go to a pristine national park. It's like, why? Well, because we see this sort of firm delineation between human spaces and what can be a natural space, as if all these things weren't completely interconnected. Um, But there again, we're back to meaning. And how do people learn new ways of meaning? It's like stories, you know? People don't usually change their view, in my experience, of who they are or their view of meaning or philosophy from lists of facts. 
it's it's stories that that connect with people and shape their worldview and i think that's why it's so important it's true and you know i i live at the doorway to a national park and so i uh, have certainly seen it all uh in terms of people not only really having a deep desire to come and visit these places for obvious reasons but then kind of having a lack of understanding of how to interact or um or just being terrified right living somewhere where there's bears and you need to carry bear spray right and but then not taking the time to understand like, what is how likely is it for you to interact and what are the other ways that you can interact when you do see a pair rather than you know panicking and spraying bear spray on everybody that's with you yeah, <laughs> right. like having a horrible day so it's it is really interesting to see how there's like this deep-seated desire for people to make these connections and to get in these places but then kind of a fear of them uh because of their their lack of knowledge or you know research before they visit a place yeah it's fear of the unknown i mean you know we often a lot of folks don't have any way that they feel like they're connecting with with nature. Um, and so you get out there and it's sort of a panicky situation. You know, I I uh, I went camping with a, a group of friends recently and uh, many of them hadn't been camping. And I got a lot of like, hey, Jared, is this a brown recluse spider? Nope. Like it's just a lot of like fear of the worst case scenario for, for, you know, every creature you encounter and, you know, every plant is this poison ivy. Nope. Um, it's, but it's the most natural thing in the world. You know, when you feel like you're out of your element, you feel vulnerable. So, you know, how do we get people back in their element, you know, their element being the natural world and to feel like, part of it um and yeah. better the curiosity than the complete you know uh isolation from from doing it you know taking the yeah. time to to learn and and understand and yeah i mean i think even our culture being what it is you know i've been out at places that take an hour plus to drive through on a horrible dusty bumpy road and this you know sitting by a beautiful lake and seeing somebody pull up, hop out of a car, take one photo and hop in their car and leave. And I just think that was a two hour round trip for one picture, you know, like put your feet in the lake, do something, spend 10 minutes. <laughs> they got their Instagram post. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it, I think a related topic is I want people to sort of make friends with curiosity and part of that is like embracing the idea that ignorance isn't a huge mark against us. You know, like um, I have a I have a three and a half year old son, and I'm already thinking like modeling for him. I don't know the answer, and isn't that exciting? Like, let's look it up. Like rather than this idea that like we have to be unassailable and have to have an opinion on everything and have to know just know you know gut feeling on on everything just the idea of being open to new information i think part of that comes from not being so afraid of like the accusation of ignorance like we're all ignorant about every everything all the time like good 
you know, like go be confused. Think of that as a positive thing, you know, an opportunity to learn something new and exciting. Like uh, that viewpoint, I think, would serve everybody so much better um, than, yeah, the political tribalism and and the fear of vulnerability that, no, I have to know it all or I have to have a set opinion on everything or suddenly I'm unanchored and weightless. Like, no, let yourself be a work in progress, you know? And there again, I feel like the only way we model that is is through, you know, storytelling and literally modeling that, the people who are in a position. Um, yeah, when I used to teach college English classes, it was great. Somebody asked me something I didn't know, so I could admit that. It was like, oh, good. You know, kind of in a, the back of my mind, I was like, ah, nice. Like a, a time to... <laughs> get out the projector and look something up together or figure it out together and having that be part of the process. Um, yeah. And, you know, we talk sometimes about branding as a thing corporations do, but people do it for themselves. This idea of like, well, I'm not an outdoorsy person. Like, okay. But maybe leave that door open a little bit and have a conversation. Uh, um because again, like with nature, you can't get people to care about it until they think it has some role in their life. You know, otherwise it's like trying to get them to care about the climate on Pluto. They just, they have no point of reference for it. You know, they have no reason to be invested. Um, you know, fear doesn't seem to work. We We seem to talk about that a lot. That seems to be the approach, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like fear is working a lot of the time. So I, we might need both sort of fear of consequences, but I also think we need the, the love side and the positivity side and the, the optimism and hope side too, of what is it you're preserving and why do you need to love it? Or why can you love it? Why do you get to love it? Yeah, it's so true. And, and, you know, I cringe when, you know, the, political uh, stories start going on something that's really a deeper issue, right? Because, and I, and then I think that's when people tune out, or as you say, like cling to, you know, this is what my side says. So this is my belief as opposed to going deeper, because I think they're really good at trying to find the meaning at the shallowest level, right? That makes you feel something. And usually it's afraid of whatever the other side is saying and and it really removes any nuance or any ability to just say let me explore on my own how I feel about that and maybe I don't feel clearly you know one way or the other and yeah. I think is so much more common for most of us as humans to say I, I can see this side of the argument but also I see this one and I fall somewhere in the middle but you know that the overwhelm of information these days lets us really kind of click into a headline or a big picture story and never explore that nuance. Yeah. And language is so important. I mean, I forget who it was the other day, but the, it was a recommendation to stop saying climate and start saying pollution because climate change has become a political buzzword, but who is going to argue against fighting pollution? Like, because words, you know, start to take on certain connotations and then they kind of lose their value to the conversation sometimes. So you don't want to think that you can be manipulated by 
marketing and uh, but you can like that's why that's why people do it that's why people <laughs> spend billions of dollars on it like the way we talk about things and the words we choose and and how we appeal to people like it matters and the truth is scientists aren't always the best people to craft those messages you know i mean i think that's a role that that storytellers and artists and creatives and spiritual leaders i mean they all they all have a role in this um because also there isn't one answer if you're talking about how to get people interested in nature or climate or how to get them invested in protecting and improving their world who are we talking about eight billion people like there's there's not going to be one approach but so it needs to be agile and adaptable and flexible and and i think it needs to go back to being rooted in the idea that nature isn't separate from us that it's that it's who we are that it's family it's not a commodity Agreed. And that once people have those experiences where they can feel that for themselves, it, you can't help but have a different opinion about it. Yeah. Yeah. It stops being a thing, you know, and starts to be something more than that. Yeah. Well, along those lines a bit, you've talked about how really our culture can kind of lull us into this sense of hopelessness that it's almost easier sometimes to be in those spaces and to feel like it's all too overwhelming and and what could I possibly do and so what you know I don't know that you have a cure for that but (laughs) what are what are your thoughts on that well so I have to think about it a lot it goes back to sort of the depression issue, you know, like I, I've done a lot of work with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and a lot of that is rooted rooted in noticing the thoughts we're having when we're having them, because otherwise, a lot of the thoughts can just feel like background static, and then you can't have a conversation with them because they're too slippery. So I think that happens to a lot of folks with just the overwhelm of information and conflicting sources and on and on. And then it's all too big. I can't do anything. So uh, the solution I think is to stop trying to own all of it. Stop trying to think you're going to have the whole picture. You're not stop trying to think that you're going to somehow come up or that you're obligated to come up with the solution. You're not, but you know, there are billions of people concerned with the same things that you are. And so you have to think about sort of the exponential power of everybody doing a little bit. I sometimes think of issues like climate change as this colossal boulder, right? And this this 30-foot tall boulder. You can't move it by yourself. That's true. You could also run at full speed and smash your body against it. That will destroy you, but it will also not move the boulder. That's also true. So what's our obligation? I think the obligation is to put your hand on it and sort of press lightly, press to your ability toward the direction of your values. The boulder moves when enough people are pressing in that same direction. So it's about doing something and avoiding the despair that comes from thinking that you need to do everything. You know, like there isn't going to be like a win scenario. It doesn't work that way um, that that you're going to come up with or that 
Nobody can do it all. Nobody can shoulder it all. Um, nobody can pay attention to it all. You know, you also have to kind of recognize the intrinsic um, worth of, of ourselves and the fact that we as people deserve peace and to feel safe and to relax and rest. And you have to honor all of these things because, you know, often the piece of nature closest to us that we can influence is ourselves, our own mind and bodies, which are just as natural as any river valley. So find a way to press on that boulder toward your values, do something, right? Something. And then also take time to realize that this isn't, you You can't move the boulder by yourself. And you also have to honor the fact that you deserve to feel safe and, you know, at peace and that hopeful and that, you know, life is worth living. So it's a balancing act. Um, but the hopelessness is seductive because if you lean into the hopelessness, what it really says is you have permission to do nothing ever because it's hopeless. So it's really a license to put it out of your head completely. And it's, you know, the kind of all or nothing thinking that I have to work against sometimes as somebody who deals with depression. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I'm seeing all these negative facts. All is lost, hopeless. Okay, well, then I have permission to do whatever I want. I don't have to think about it all anymore, except to say, check the box. It's hopeless. So I think hopelessness is seductive in that way because it closes the book because a lot of people just want the book closed. And if there isn't going to be one simple solution for how to fix it, close the book and think, all right, well, it's done. Anyway, it's hopeless. Um, but of course, that's not how anything works. That's that's never that simple. No, and I, I think it is really easy to get into that place because we think not only is there nothing we can do, but that you know, the there are much more powerful people, corporations, organizations that are doing things actively against what we might choose, right? That, that they are in their decision making is in complete opposition to the decision that we would make or the way that you know we would push the boulder, that we're powerless against it. And I just think you know, they're doing the same thing. They're just taking action every day. They're just making decisions every day. And over time, it, you know, gathers momentum and speed. And so if there were enough people uh, who felt in an opposite way or a different way, also making decisions, taking action day after day, like it, it would start to balance out. It would start to shift. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, sometimes it's as simple as choosing between two brands, you know, maybe, maybe you're not going to take down bad corporate actors everywhere, but maybe you can research what paper towel company is, you know, operating in a more sustainable way, or maybe you can choose not to use paper towels. You know, it's, there's something, that's what I mean. When I say press lightly against the boulder, like there is something that, that can be done that doesn't derail your life, you know? Um, and I, you know, I think it's a human thing. It's definitely a me thing that we think either I am on the front lines of this doing everything, or I need to give up thinking about it altogether. Like, no, that's not, that's not usually how things get done. Um, things get done with like a balanced 
incremental approach typically. And, you know, a lot of us are in a capitalist sort of system that that makes it hard sometimes to feel like you're in control of of how you're participating. But, you know, you can vote with your with your dollars on things. You can, you know, donate. You can listen. You can lift up other voices. There's there's just lots of stuff you can do. Um, You know, if you're a storyteller, you can take time to educate you can share uplifting hopeful things you know that help connect people to nature um yeah there's just lots of ways to be of service to your own to your own values and it's important to give yourself permission to sort of celebrate your small efforts and small wins because yeah you can you're the ultimate judge of if you're doing something successfully or worthwhile. And like, there will always be a reason to feel guilty. Just like you will always be ignorant. Of course, (laughs) the point is to then also say to yourself, but that's okay because like I'm a limited finite being and my self-worth isn't rooted in this idea that I own giant global conflicts. No, feel good that you chose the right paper towel brand or whatever, you know, that you, that you educated a friend on orb weaver spiders, you know, it's, there are just lots of ways to approach it. Um, But you don't approach it at all. If you shut down because you've embraced hopelessness. And, you know, as we said earlier about like social media and the negativity algorithms, there's a lot of forces that pile on people these days that push toward hopelessness or despair, or fury. Um, but those things, those, you know, lenses aren't aren't good ways to view the world, and they don't get things done. Yeah, it's such a good reminder, and I think it's even just a good reminder that we're surrounded by the seriousness and the, the heaviness all the time. And I love that you've said that whimsy is powerful, and that's certainly one of the things that you're exploring on your podcast but yeah yeah, i'd love to hear your thoughts more on that yeah for me whimsy is i think i once defined it as enthusiasm that doesn't need to justify itself with practicality and so it's a kind of meaning making you know there were lightning bugs all over my yard the other night and so i just went and sat in the grass that wasn't for anything except that it was incredibly nourishing and enriching. And then, you know, it, it it gives me energy to create, which then might help other people and send a ripple through the world. And because the way our culture works, like this hustle culture, this the ultimate goal is to get rich culture. Sometimes like we internalize those messages so much. And then like, then there's no point in going and enjoying lightning bugs or, you know, shaping your day around the idea of moving toward the smell of fresh baked bread or the things that actually make life worthwhile, but they don't make anybody rich. Um, And living in a way where you give whimsy the credit and power that it deserves, I think is such like an important part of the human animal and the richness in life and maybe even a key component to reconnecting with nature and why it's important. Um, yeah. 
you know, trees. I, I love trees so much and they're so commonplace. And we're so focused sometimes on scarcity uh, or, you know, status that, or, or wealth, you know, or expense. And so many of these forces that are engineered, you know, they're marketing engineered forces get you to miss so many of the sort of natural wonders that, that enrich life and, or just the whimsy, the permission you can give yourself to have fun and be delighted. Um, that I think it's starting to almost be a skill. Like you almost have to cultivate whimsy. You have to think about it. Little kids don't have to think about it. Little kids will spin in a circle until they, until they laugh and fall down. Like cool, free and fun. And, and just like enjoying your body in space. But the longer I feel like you live in our culture, the more you have to think about whimsy as, as a, as a practice, as a thing you have to intentionally return to. And um, yeah, that's a lot of words to say, like, no, prioritize fun, have fun. <laughs> fun is a good thing. Like it's, it's worthwhile. It doesn't need justified, you know, fun is its own justification. Yeah, and I, I certainly on occasion will approach my my walks out in the woods or out in nature with kind of the idea or the intention of show me something magical, right? Yeah. Just and, and inevitably it happens, right? Or I see something, like you say, the moss you've never seen before, or the right. uh a really cool animal or bird encounter, or just you know, something happens that you think that was that was my own kind of setting that intention that, that there are magical things all around me, even in my backyard where I go all the time. Absolutely. I, I think magic is a thing you meet halfway. And so like, yeah, you do your part to meet magic halfway. You often find that it's coming to meet you, you know, it's walking its half. Um, but there's a choice in that, you know, and I, I feel like that's related to that choice to embrace whimsy. Beautiful. Well, before we wrap up, I, I would love to hear your own kind of imaginings on, you know, what might the world look like in this future timeline when we're all remembering and reconnected to nature in this whimsical, magical way? Oh, huh. You know... The positivity I have found lately <laughs> out of the elements of climate crisis we're facing and biodiversity is like, I feel like I know how people work. And I feel like sometimes you don't appreciate something until it's threat, you're threatened to lose it. Um, and so I kind of imagine a world where that lesson has come home and, you know, we've shifted over to renewable, you know, energy sources and green energy sources and, getting people interested in sort of their own gardens and how their yard can be a part of biodiversity, like sort of a future without huge grass lawns and um, places where you let kind of like the free delight of nature come into your life, not because you bought it, but because you invited it there through, you know, pollinator gardens and, and, you know, planting tree species, like, you know, I just, I just planted a white oak. And if you, if you look into all of the species that use and rely on a white oak, it's mind blowing. It's a lifetime of study. Um, and so there's so much rich richness hidden in plain sight. I feel like in a future where people are more keyed into that, 
the conversations are so much more interesting because people's curiosity takes them down different rabbit holes of discovery. And then like, they want to tell you about what's happening in their oak tree in their yard, you know, and then you have something to share because your yard's a different place, you know, or, or your journey, you know, the path you walk. And so there's so much richness out there that is just invisible because we've made it invisible. And I like to think of a future where folks feel more connected to nature. And so there's sort of an always a cause for celebration, you know, and and then, you know, the cyclical nature of the year and the seasons. And so all of that becomes kind of an organic way to to shape our celebrations and lives. And clearly we've seen that it has such an influence on, on human culture in the past. And it's just a fun, whimsical place, I think, defined by curiosity and excitement um, and a feeling of general gratitude and thankfulness to be here. I love that. I will hold that vision <laughs> for us all going forward. And I'm sure as people have heard you share about this, if they haven't found you online or your podcast yet, they will be going to look for you. So can you share how people can find and connect with you? Oh, sure. So I'm crypto naturalist on most social media. Um CryptoNaturalist.com. You can find my podcast there, any place else that you find podcasts. I have two poetry collections published right now um, Field Guide to the Haunted Forest by Jared K. Anderson and Love Notes from the Hollow Tree by me. Um, I have a book coming out next year about um, sort of depression through the lens of connecting with nature. It's a memoir um, from Timber Press out of Portland. and yeah, it's you alluded to this earlier, but I post a lot of poetry and sort of philosophy on on social media. But then the podcast is kind of a different animal, which focuses on on cryptids, and it's it's sort of comedy, and sometimes can be a bit spooky. But it's uh, it's an enthusiastic expert about fictional nature, essentially. But it captures that same sort of sense of awe and whimsy that we've been talking about. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I've so enjoyed our conversation and I'm looking forward to sharing it. Thanks, Amy. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Sending my deepest gratitude to Jared for this illuminating discussion. And I hope it's inspired you to think about exploring the world and telling stories about nature in a totally new way. If you enjoyed this episode and think these ideas are worth spreading, I hope you'll share it with others. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and thanks for being here on the Earth at this moment in time. I'll see you back here next week. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earthkeepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earthkeepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.